Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's guest speaker is Gordon Zerkowski. The title of the message is The Believer's Bigger Gospel. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. It's great to be back at Vanguard Bible Church. Um, it's always good to be back here. You know, this is the church that is the furthermost west of all of our churches, which makes sense given that it's California. Uh, but whether it's the, uh, in Bakersfield or whether we go as far east as uh, Kingston, Ontario, just outside of Montreal, or south into Austin, Texas, where we have another church plant, or uh, into Wisconsin and Sturgeon Bay, where we have another church partner, and every church, uh, Five Stone Partner Church in between, uh, we're all partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and the work you do here in Bakersfield to make disciples is just the same kind of work they're doing in Kingston, Ontario with those Canadians, uh, just the same kind of work we're doing in Austin, Texas with those Texans, uh, and in Wisconsin and all the churches in between, partners in the gospel of our great Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I said partners in the gospel of the great Lord Jesus Christ, of our great Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, uh, did you think only in terms of evangelism? Did you think only in terms of uh, God came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life, taught people for three years as he walked around this earth, uh, was persecuted, was cruelly treated, died on the cross, resurrected and rose again, and ascended into heaven? Is that the extent of your thinking about the gospel when I say the word to you, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, it is. If it is that limited, then it's too limited. The, the believer's got a bigger gospel than that. I was contemplating this, con uh, this concept of the bigness of God on my patio not so long ago, a beautiful summer day, and I was just thinking about it, and I was admiring uh, the blue sky and the trees, and I was watching the birds fly. It was a beautiful morning uh, where I live. And, you know, suddenly a bug landed on my hand. Now, I'm not a bug guy. Normally, I would flick the bug off, and I, I would be very disturbed that there was a bug on me. I'm not a bug guy. Uh, but as I contemplated the greatness of God in his creation above and around me, it occurred to me as this bug was standing on my hand that God also created that little bug. And I took a good look at him. He had red eyes. He was like a, a quarter of an inch long, a very tiny little bug. Red eyes and a green body and these gray wings with all these veins. And I was just admiring the detail and the beauty of this little tiny bug. And then he, he had about like eight legs, I think, or four or eight legs, I don't remember. But he's, and I'm not kidding when I tell you this, this is true. He, he, as I was facing up to him, he started going like this, with his little body, back and forth. And I thought, well, this is an amazing thing. And then he jumped up and he went over my head and I let out a howl. And my daughter said, hey, what's going on out there? Are you okay out there? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, just contemplating uh, the Lord. <laughs> but you know, the, the bigness of our God he is in the creation. I mean, he's not in the creation, but he created everything. The greatness of the mountains that we saw on the men's retreat, the beauty of the trees, the blue jays that I was observing, and all creation is a part of the gospel because it identifies who he is. I'm not going to ask you to turn here, but in Psalm 50, verse 10, he de the Lord describes some of this. He says in Psalm 50, verse 10, starting in verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine. Now, that includes the bug I talked about, the trees, the blue jays, the mountains, everything. Everything he made, all the animals and everything from great in size to the tiniest. Every beast of the forest is mine. He owns it. The cattle on a thousand hills, 
I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And then skipping to verse 21. You thought that I was like yourself, or you thought that I was like you. God is not like you. He's not like me. He's awesome beyond measure. That's part of the gospel. You see, the the awesomeness of the gospel includes the identification and the impressiveness of who he is. The impressiveness of who he is. It's impressive because of who he is. God coming to earth as a human being is impressive because of who he is. Now, let's contrast that with, let's say I sent my son, one of my sons, to Bakersfield to do some work here. Um, uh, son, you're going to go and you're going to save as many people as you can. Is, is that a, maybe the sacrifice of his coming here to do all the work to, for the gospel would be impressive, but the nature of who he is would not be impressive. The impressiveness of the gospel is rooted in the identity of our Lord. It's rooted in the identity of our Lord. Colossians 1 said that if you know Christ as Savior, he has um, delivered you from the dominion of darkness and transferred you in the kingdom of his marvelous light into the relationship we have through the great Jesus Christ, his great son. You see, he, he has delivered you from one life, darkness, the dominion of darkness, where people live in darkness, and he's transferred you from that into his kingdom of light. It's not just a domain, it's his kingdom. You are a, if you know Jesus as your savior and Lord, you see, you are a daughter or you are a son of the great king. Now, I've not read this book, but I love the title of the book. It says, the title of this book is How to Live Like a King's Kid. How to Live Like a King's Kid. If you have Christ, you are in his kingdom as his son or his daughter. Just imagine that. The one that we've been talking about in Psalm 50, who who owns all things and made all things, both the great and the small. You're his child. You are valued. You are loved. You are treasured. You are the apple of his eye. And because of that, there are certain things we need to do in response of that. We need to preach that truth to ourselves every day. We need to remind ourselves of that truth every day. Look, each of us has troubles. I I, I can imagine in 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 this group, there's troubles. If, If I were to talk to you privately, you've got troubles. I've got troubles. Every human being has troubles and difficulties and challenges. It's all common to each of us, no matter where we are. Ontario, Texas... Wisconsin, California, everywhere in between. It's all the same, different faces on the troubles. But as a son, as a daughter of the great king, you have a great opportunity to have a different perspective. You are in his kingdom and will be in eternity when he comes back and when he sets up the new heaven and the new earth. You need to remind yourself of these things, that you are valued and his child. He's able, he's awesome, and he's good. It's always about the gospel. Everything is about the gospel. And so when we look around this world and we look around the United States and we we see what's happening, as I said, it's always about the gospel. It's always about the gospel, who he is and whether I'm going to listen to him, who he is and whether I'm going to obey him. It's always about the gospel in your heart, in my heart, in everybody else's heart, saved, unsaved, Christian, non-Christian. It's always about the gospel. Will I obey and follow or not? Extreme rebellion is often what we see today. I was reading um, an article written by a Harvard University ethicist. Now, we've gone from right to life of the unborn to debating whether the born have a right to life. This Harvard University medical ethicist argues that a baby born has no right to live. The mother can decide to kill that baby after birth. Did you hear that? 
a baby born, now we're debating whether the baby who is born has a right to live, or can that baby be killed at the whim or the desire of the mother? Mass shootings in Las Vegas and all over our country, at universities and elsewhere, we read about bombings, beheadings, sexual sin, uh, things that are even not worthy to be mentioned. Um, Romans 1, 28 to 32 talks about multiplied sin. Um, let me just read a section of that. Romans 1, 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. He's talking about the unbelieving world. They don't acknowledge God, so God gave them up. You want that? You want to do that? Okay, go ahead. God gave them up. They're doing more of it. They gave, he gave them up to a debased mind, a debased mind that cannot do good. It's impossible for them to do good. Romans 6 talks about multiplied sin, multiplied upon multiplied. So it gets worse and worse as it piles up. Inventors of evil. Some of the things we're seeing today are things we would never have thought about five years ago. Honestly, I, I read things and I cannot believe they are even being discussed. So, in light of that, in light of who God is and his greatness, his awesome goodness, and the fact that if we know Christ, you are either a son of the king of the universe or a daughter of the king of the universe. You are royalty. And one day, this, all, this whole earth is going to go away and you're going to be with him in the kingdom of light. Delivered from the domain of darkness into his kingdom of light. Live like a king's kid. So how are we to do this? What are we to do? In light of the gospel, the bigness of who he is, in light of who he is, what he has done and what he's about to do, I want to consider with you the demands of the gospel. Not suggestions, but what does the Lord want from us as a son or a daughter of the king? Let's pray and we'll get into Philippians. Lord Jesus, we... Just it's such a privilege to be with your people, Lord, and to open your word. I pray that the letter of Paul to the Philippians would be a great blessing to every person here. Uh, that we would get a glimpse of not only who you are, but also what you want from us, from those who are your children, and those who know that one day all the troubles of this earth, everything that each of us is burdened by this morning, whatever that might be, uh, that it will all disappear, that we're going to be in your presence. But we have work to do. We have work to do in joy. Um, in service to the great king because of who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. I pray that you would guard the words of my mouth and that the truth of your word, the spirit of your word, uh, would be planted in each of our hearts. I ask this in the name of our great king, Jesus. Amen. We're going to be uh, uh, sitting and, and considering Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30. Uh, Philippians was written by the apostle Paul, uh, Philippi is the city. Philippi is in present-day Greece. Uh, Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians from prison. Now, we don't know if he was in prison in Rome or Colossae or probably in one of those two cities, likely Rome. But he's writing to the church in Philippi, present-day Greece. He's writing to them in joy and remembrance and an encouragement to them about their lives in Christ. It was the first church in, in Europe the first church in the province of Macedonia. Remember, Paul had a vision. If you look back at Acts 16, Paul had a vision 
and someone from Macedonia in his vision called out and said, come and help us, come and help us. So he ends up in Philippi in Macedonia, which was a province of Rome, a province of Rome. They lived in Macedonia in this province as though they were living in Rome itself. It was a great privilege for them as they saw it to be a citizen of Rome and to live in Macedonia as though they were in Rome. So he writes it to encourage them and is filled with joy and thanksgiving for them. He's looking back. He's, he's in prison and he's looking back to Philippi. The, the gospel, the word gospel is mentioned nine times in Paul's writing. He mentions it nine times. He talks about their participation with him in the gospel, living worthy for the gospel, the defense of the gospel twice. Defense of the gospel. In other words, the gospel's under attack. And so we're going to defend it. The progress of the gospel, two times mentioned in the letter to the Philippians, the progress of the gospel in the face of opposition, it doesn't matter, it's going forward. Striving for the gospel, preaching the gospel, and advancing the cause of the gospel. Advancing the cause of the gospel. And remember, the gospel is more than just evangelism. It's presenting to people who Christ is, who the Lord is, in his awesome power and his greatness. We're going to look at uh, verses 27 to 30 in chapter 1, as I mentioned and I'm going to give you the three points in your notes right up front, and then we'll talk about each of them. The gospel demands, first, it demands a life of devotion. A life of devotion. The gospel demands a life of devotion. We'll get that out of verse 27 and beyond. Second, the gospel demands unity of purpose. The gospel demands unity of purpose. And lastly, the gospel demands courage in the face of opposition. Courage in the face of opposition. The gospel demands a life of devotion, unity of purpose, courage in the face of opposition. Let me read those three, four verses. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Verse 27, Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be counted worthy of the gospel. He's telling us what needs to be done to each of us, each of you sitting here. This is God's word for you today. What does God want from me? He wants the manner of my life to be worthy, to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember, in light of who he is, live a life worthy of of the gospel of Christ. Um, I have four children, now all grown. Two sons, two daughters, all grown. They're doing very well. Um, my middle son, when he was about 16, he got into some trouble. Never had trouble with him. But he got into some trouble when he was 16. It involved beer and some guy friends and some others, and it also involved the police. And so he was in my office as a result of this uh, encounter, and he looked miserable. He looked perfectly miserable. <laughs> And so because of his countenance, and I could tell he was already miserable, I, I kind of dialed down my, my words to him because I assessed how he was doing. He was already miserable, and I just wanted to, del to deliver a few things. And uh, my son, uh, Matthew, he, he likes to read. 
and he was reading a book uh, called The Greatest Generation. It's about the World War II generation and their great sacrifices and what they accomplished. It's by Tom Brokaw, maybe you've read it. But he, he was reading The Greatest Generation. And we sat there, and I didn't say a word. I was just looking at him, and, and we were thinking together. I could tell he was thinking. Um, and I just wanted to sit there in silence and let him ponder the situation. And he looked up at me, and he said, uh, Dad, do you think that my generation is the worst generation? And I said, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know about that, but I, I, do, I do know this. Um, you are responsible for yourself. You are responsible for the decisions you make in this life. You are responsible for the decisions you made last night with your friends, and you're responsible for that. Now, you can try to influence your friend rightly or not. Maybe they won't listen to you. You can try to influence them, but ultimately, you don't have to do what everybody else does. You will decide what you're going to do. See, you're responsible for yourself. Uh, Matthew, you need to live a life worthy of Christ. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, don't cause him to be blasphemed because of your behavior. And I say this to myself as well. Don't cause the name of Christ to be blasphemed, people mocking him. Oh, yeah, he's a Christian, look at him. Uh, Romans, uh, Romans, Paul says, the, the name of Christ is blasphemed because of your behavior. Son, you have got to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we're supposed to do. And the question then is, son, what is the manner of my life in regards to what I know about Christ? What's the manner of my life in, in regards to what I know about the gospel and about who he is, his greatness? And as a son of his, what is the manner of my life going to be? Am I going to make him pleased to call me son so that I can hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, come into the pleasure of your master? The gospel demands a life of devotion. And so Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What is the manner of your life in regards to what is taught here week after week and what you know is taught in the scriptures, what the Lord wants? Only you can answer that. But there is a way to live the Christian life that pleases the Lord. And Paul here, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, says, look, Here's who he is. Here's what he wants to do. Here's what I'm doing. Paul gives a review before this section about what he's been up to in his imprisonment. He talks about joy, as I said, and thanksgiving for them. But here's what you need to do, he says to them. Let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's the result of that? Well, among, uh, among the results of that kind of a life is that Paul says, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Unity of purpose. Unity of purpose. The decision to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is manifested in a unity of purpose. Standing firm. Now, there's no need to stand firm in the face of no opposition. What's the need to stand firm? If I'm relaxed, then there's no opposition. A standing firm is required when there's opposition by definition. There has to be opposition in order to stand firm. It is presumed. Paul's presuming there's opposition, but he says standing firm in one spirit in unity, unity of purpose in the gospel, with one mind striving. Again, that's an opposition word. Standing firm, striving is a fighting word. Striving, pushing, fighting. What are we fighting? Oh, the problem I think sometimes in the Christian life is we, are, we don't think there's a war going on. We're very comfortable. 
I'm very casual about the faith. Maybe I will look at my scriptures today. Maybe I'll think about the Lord today. Maybe I'll pray today. Maybe I won't. I'm a little busy. I'm tired. The football game's on. Whatever it might be, whatever the distraction is, that's not good. That's not good. And sometimes God causes trouble in our lives to get our attention. It's a very biblical concept. If he can't get your attention ordinarily, sometimes he causes trouble for you to realize, and I speak to myself as well, not just you, to cause you to realize your need of him and to cause you to say, Lord, I I don't understand this. I need you. Help me. What do you want me to do here? But we need to stand firm in the face of opposition, in unity, with one mind. With one mind. Does that mean we all have to be the same? You see, unity is not the same as uh, universality. Um, it's not that we all have to be the same types of people. We, we all are uni- unified in the purpose of our lives toward Jesus Christ, serving in this church, doing what God wants us to do in serving at Vanguard Bible Church together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, And not frightened in anything by your opponents, not frightened, courageous in the face, fearless in the, in the face of opponents. And we've got lots of opponents. This fearlessness that is talked about here in verse 28, not frightened, the, a, a picture in the original languages would be used of horses. Now, when horses get frightened, what do they do? Uh, they shake. I mean, they literally shake, and then they run. When I was a boy, my dad used to take my brother and I and, and my mom uh, to farm vacations. I grew up in the city of Chicago, uh, right in the city, and uh, my dad thought it would be a good idea to expose me, expose my brother to life of a different type, to appreciate people who don't live in the city. It was a very smart thing for him to do. I really appreciated that. And as a kid, I, I used to, we used to go to these farm vacations, and I, it was just such a thrill for me to see the animals and, and to do all these things that farmers do, get up and milk the cows and um, there, there, there were two horses that my brother used to ride when we went to this one farm in Indiana. And uh, my horse was named Penny, and the horse he rode was named Star. Well, I got up early one day, and I, had, I was about eight, seven or eight years old. I had the bright idea of going and getting up early and riding, setting up a horse and riding him by myself. I don't know what I was thinking. But um, I did this, and I decided I wasn't going to ride Penny. I was going to ride my big brother's horse, Star. And as I got on there, I could see his shoulder was shaking. And I think he wasn't afraid of my size. I think he was concerned that I didn't know what I was doing. And I was going to get up on this horse. And I got up on this horse, and he was shaking, and he took off like a bolt. And he ran through the barbed wire fence, and I got knocked off. It it was fine. I got into some trouble. But that's what horses do when they're afraid. They shake, and then they run. There's another picture of this that we um, uh, we can look to out of Isaiah. King Ahaz in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, uh, the king of Judah, um, he was going to be attacked by two kings, he and his kingdom. And um, he was deeply afraid. And if you look at his response, and Ahaz was a bad king, by the way. He was a very bad king. His dad was a good king, but he was a very bad king. But um, um, Isaiah comes to him knowing that he's afraid. God sends Isaiah to, uh, Isaiah to him. And in verse 2, by the way, let me back up. The heart of the people shook. See, that's the same picture, the shaking. The heart of the people shook. This is Isaiah 7, verse 2. The heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind, petrified, immensely petrified. See, that's what God doesn't want from us. It doesn't matter what we're facing. God says, don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid. But the people were afraid. Ahaz was afraid. He was deathly afraid. And they shook like a horse or like the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah in verse 3, Go out and meet Ahaz. Take your son and meet him here in in verse 4. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not be afraid, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's what God thought of these two kings that were threatening Ahaz and the people of Judah. Don't be afraid of them. But here's what you do, Ahaz, through Isaiah. Isaiah said, here's what the Lord says. Be careful, be quiet, don't fear. Don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. And what's interesting about this, if you read 2 Kings 15, God sent these two kings to be against Ahaz. Isn't that interesting? See, that's another picture of his sovereign control and rule. He says, okay, Ahaz, I'm going to send these two kings against you. You're going to be, God knows it all. But he says to Ahaz, look, don't be afraid. Just be very quiet and be careful. And why would he want us to be quiet in danger? Why would he want us to take care? Because we've got to make decisions. This is the crucible that Ahaz was in. And what crucible are you in today? The advice would be from the Lord, be careful, be quiet, listen to him, seek him. Don't be afraid by these circumstances because God says There's not, they're nothing to me. They're big to you, but they're nothing to me. I can handle it. It's okay. You don't need to be afraid. And then in verse uh, 9, Isaiah says to Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Ahaz, you've got to be strong in faith. Faith, remember faith, the definition of faith from Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it men of old were justified. But if you're not firm in faith, you'll not be firm at all. It didn't end well for Ahaz, but that's an example of a person who, not walking with the Lord, the Lord Lord brought some trouble, terrified. God says, don't be afraid, be careful, be quiet. That's the picture in in, uh, Philippians 1, verse 28. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't be frightened by your opponents. Be fearless, be fearless. Why and how? Well, knowing how big God is, that's how you are fearless. Embracing him for who he is, knowing how big he is, and being unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That results in no fear. So what? So what's the the fruit of a a fearless life in Christ? Well, Paul says right here, the second part of verse 28, uh, their lack of fear is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That fearlessness to them says, well, why isn't this person afraid of me? Why isn't this Christian person who I'm trying to knock off and uh, make miserable, whatever it might be, why is he not afraid of me? And that causes them some puzzlement. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction. Um, Paul's writing to the Corinthian brothers and sisters talks about uh, we are an odor of life to those who are going to be with God. We're an odor of life to brothers and sisters in Christ, but to the unbeliever, we're an odor of death, and we smell to them. So those who are not seeking God, who don't care about God, aren't interested in God, they look at us and they say, oh, you smell. Now, how do we smell? We remind them of where they're going, the second death. We're all going to die physically once unless the Lord rescues us out before we die. We're all going to die once, but we are spared what the Bible calls the second death, the spiritual death. The unbeliever doesn't have that. He has the promise of the second death, which is the most terrifying thing of all, is to be cast away from God in eternity. 
See, that fearlessness that God wants us to have is a clear sign to them of their destruction, and it, it can infuriate them, and that's okay. It's got to be okay with us. We are in Christ. That's what God wants from us, and you can't do this if you're not connected with him in a strong way, in a regular daily way. It's very difficult. You have to be connected to him. Your fearlessness is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. It's a gift from God. Verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Really? It's been granted to me to suffer for his sake? Granted. Uh, don't, don't, don't be confused. Uh, the scripture considers suffering for the gospel a gift. It's a gift from God. And our response of no fear and of unity with brothers and sisters and of devotion in life, regardless of the circumstances. We've talked about this in the previous verses, but that kind of response in persecution or pain or suffering is the fruit of a life well-lived in Christ. And it's a gift that God has given to you. Now, that's hard to think of it that way. But it is. It's counted to your account for righteousness. It's counted to your account as, one of the, as gold and silver and precious stones from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, for the benefit of Christ, for the fame of his name, you're going to suffer this fate. Christ suffered. Why should we be spared what Christ has not been spared of or Paul has not been spared of or the great men and women of all the scriptures have not been spared suffering? You've been given a gift that for the reputation of Christ, for the sake of Christ, you not only believe but also suffer for his sake. Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. He's referencing there when he talks about you are engaging in the same conflict that you saw I had. He's referencing uh, Acts 16, chapter nine, uh, Acts 16, verses 19 through 20. You remember Paul went to Ephesus after the call in Macedonia. And if you look at Acts 16, you would see that he preaches the gospel in, uh, in uh, uh, Philippi. He and uh, Silas are thrown into prison. They're abused. They're beaten with rods, and they sing. <laughs> they sing in prison. And then they're miraculously rescued. That's the conflict that they saw that he had in Philippi. And the fruit of that is the planting of the church in Philippi. You're engaged, he says, in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. He's in prison, probably in Rome, or Colossae, probably in Rome. But he's engaged with them in the conflict. And it's not ending for Paul. And so by his own persecution, by his example, uh, by his still being in prison in different parts of the Roman world, they see that and they can be encouraged by it. It, it puts the gospel forth in greater power. So... The gospel has those three primary demands uh, that he expects us to uh, live in a certain way. The gospel um, demands a life of devotion, unity of purpose about him, and courage in the face of opposition. I wanted to read to you a poem by Amy Carmichael. Uh, you may be familiar with, uh, with Amy Carmichael. Uh, she was a missionary uh, to India, a very well-known a missionary, lived about 85, it's about the age of 84, 85, a very, very famous missionary, but she was Irish. She was born in Ireland, never married, uh, went to um, India, 
but knew something about the cost of following Christ, knew a lot about the cost of following Christ. Um, let me just read this to you. The poem is called No Scar by Amy Carmichael. And she says, Have you no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear, your, I hear you sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail you, uh, your bright ascendant star. Have you no scar? Have you no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Have you no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But yours are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? And I don't read that poem to you to shame you or to shame me or to say Amy Carmichael is up here. She's a superstar in the Christian faith. She may or may not be. I don't know. But this poem is, I think, a reflection of the price and the cost that it can be to follow Christ. And if we're following him faithfully, we will face opposition. And there are certain things we can count on and certain things we need to do in response to it to please him. And maybe you're, maybe you're called to be um, a homemaker with children, and maybe a woman who's called to be a homemaker, or maybe you work in a factory, or maybe you're doing some job that you're not exactly thrilled to do. Uh, maybe you, you could be at any stage of life and do, be doing any number of things. If God has called you to do that, be, a, be a, a source of his light in that context with a bunch of unbelievers, or in a home raising children, or whatever you are doing in your daily life, do that with all your might. Whatever you do, do it faithfully for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. That's Colossians 3.23. He are you serving in whatever call he has for you as a student, whatever it might be. So in closing, I have a, three questions I want to ask you, or one question and a few answers and possible answers. Uh, what is standing in your way of living more fully for Christ? Uh, as his son or as his daughter? What is standing in your way of serving him? Remember, you're loved, you're cherished, you're cherished, you're a receiver of his delight and love if you know him as a son and as a daughter or as a daughter. But what is standing in your way? Is your, is your relationship with him pretty casual? Mm, you know, maybe it needs to be fired up a little bit. Let me ask you this. Do you love the world more than you love Christ? Do you love the things of this world more than you love Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and rose for you and sacrificed for you? Some people say, well, you know, I think I'm a Christian. I think I know Christ. Well, uh, there's a good way to tell. One of the good ways to tell is uh, out of 14, John 14, 21, uh, where the Lord says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You claim to know Christ? Well, seek to live for him. Seek to walk with him in his power. But do you love the world more than you love him? That's a problem you've, you need to work on. You need to think about that and see what, you, what your status is. Do you love your comfort more than you love Christ? All the comforts we have in our country. I love our country. I love the United States, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, 
it's a comfortable place to live. If you were to compare our life to anywhere else in the world, we live in a very good place. That's why so many people want to come here. But do you love your comforts and your sin more than you love Christ? There's sin pockets in your life. We all have sin pockets. Do you love that? Or is that, is that something you just say, well, I'm going to leave this. I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to indulge myself here. You know, we all love John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The verses behind that, following that, are not so popular. Uh, uh, for example, John 3.19 says, this is the condemnation. Here's what Jesus is. Here's who he is in 3.16. 3.19, this is the condemnation. Uh, for men and women loved the darkness rather than the light their deeds were evil. You see, until you get sick of your sin, I say, I, you know, I'm sick of this. I am very tired of being a Christian man, a Christian woman, and having this problem in my life. I want to get rid of it. Lord, help me. Teach me. Help me to apply your word to be free and to be better than I am, to become more than I am so I can do more for you. Do you love your comfort? Do you love your sin more than you love Christ? Do you love your stuff? Here's one. Do you fear people? and their disdain. It's interesting, you know, I didn't ride my motorcycle here. Uh, I flew. Um, not nearly as much fun, but a whole lot better use of time. Um, but on the flight from my home in Chicago to Phoenix, there was an old couple, elderly, frail. I was on the aisle seat, and the man was in the middle, and his wife was uh, by the window. And they were quiet, very quiet. They were engaging in their own conversation. But... Um, uh, Toward the end of the flight, we were actually making our approach into Phoenix, and he said to me, uh, I had been reading my Bible and reading a book and, and reading newspapers, and I was just reading all the time on the flight. And he, as we were approaching Phoenix Airport, he said, um, my, you've been busy. Oh, I said, well, I like to read. And he goes, you've been very busy. Interesting. What do you do? And in the interest of brevity and, and simplicity, I just told him I was a pastor. I didn't want to explain everything about Fifestone. It wasn't necessary. I said, well, I'm a pastor. And the woman gave me a look. I, I, it was stunning. This little old lady, frail, looked at me and said, you're a pastor? I, ca I, can't, I can't imitate her face. It was so dismissive and disgusted. You're a pastor? I said, well, yeah. And then she, she said something I couldn't understand. It was unintelligible. And then she said the word superstition. Superstition. I, I didn't know what she said in advance of that, but she was staring at me, and I thought, wow. You know, Lord, I'm just sitting here minding my own business. They saw me reading my Bible. I was reading a Christian book, and, and I was also reading secular newspapers, you know, and, and the man was very pleasant and very gracious to me, but that lady, boy, she could have really put daggers in my throat. You see, that's the kind of simple example of some of the ways our culture is going. But does that scare you? Does the rejection by people put you in a state of great fear so that you keep your mouth shut? If I say that, this person's going to ridicule me. If I say that, if I defend the Lord, this person is going to dislike me or will cost me. My boss will dislike me. I was talking to another pastor in our network um, just last week, uh, and we were talking about baptism. Um, and this person was raised Roman Catholic in this church, was raised Roman Catholic, and, and is now attending our partner church here uh, in another city. And the pastor said to me, um, uh, she's afraid to get baptized by immersion because she's afraid of what her family would say. And she, he says, well, I'm not sure how to handle that. And my, you see, my argument is, okay, uh, the perspective is, is getting baptized going to please Christ? Will he say, I like that? 
You see, if he likes it, then we need to do it. It doesn't matter what my mom says, as much as I love my mom, or my dad, or my sons, or my daughters, or my wife, or my grandsons, it doesn't matter. If Christ says, Gordon, you need to do this because I like it, and I want you to do it, it doesn't matter what they say. You see, that's the perspective. That'll give you courage. And that's what Christ meant when he said, unless you hate your mother and father and take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. See, that's what it means. That's real life application. And then all the dilemmas fade. All the dilemmas fade about people because the one person you have in mind is Christ, the Son of the Trinity, God the Son in Trinity, the Logos of the Trinity. Take a look at Revelation 1 if you're wondering how awesome he is. And then think, do I want to displease or please him? And in comparison to these people, whether I love them or not, they are, he is awesome, and I'm going to do what he says, regardless of the disdain of people. That's the strength and the power of the church. And when you're unafraid, that, to your persecutors or your rejectors, that causes them to think, what is wrong with this person? Don't you know I have the power to hurt you? Sure you do, but I'm not afraid of you. I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. So the question is, what is standing in your way of, having more, of living more fully for him? Uh, do you love the world more than you love Christ, the things of this world? Do you love your comfort? Do you love your secret sin more than you love Christ? Uh, do you love your stuff? Do you love people more than you love Christ? Do you, uh, are you afraid of rejection and disdain from these people? Uh, you can answer those things, and you know what? If you're not sure of the answers, ask the Lord in a quiet place. Contemplate and ponder whether any of these things is a problem for you. And then go out of this place and go out from wherever you are at that moment in power, in renewal of connection with our great Savior Jesus Christ, living with him in great power for his glory and for his good and for his pleasure and for your own good as well. Let's pray together. Lord, you are great beyond what we can ask or think, and that covers our salvation as well. You have things stored up for us in heaven that are so awesome that we can't imagine what they are and how good they are and wonderful. And so I pray that each person here would take the words of your scriptures, apply them, and embrace the goodness and the awesomeness of who you are, your goodness, the love you have for your sons and your daughters, and how you just so much desire for them, for us, to live for you first and foremost. Lord, sit on the thrones of our hearts and so that we may live in power and enjoy, knowing that the price we pay here is a small price indeed for the glory that we will enjoy with you in eternity. And Lord, you call us to be joyful in this life. Help us, Lord, to enjoy you and to live for you. We ask this in the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.